welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Back on the road this week with a brand new travel mic and only two cases to discuss. Specifically, I'm recording from Miami, where I had the honor of speaking on advanced removability issues at the in-person AILA South Florida conference on a panel with incoming AILA South Florida President Carla Lammers and incoming AILA National President Jeremy McKinney. I truly hope that all who attended found the presentation insightful. It really was such a pleasure to meet so many of you. As to Carla and Jeremy, for my part, I have absolutely no doubt that AILA is in excellent hands. And it really was a great conference. Hats off to you, Ayla South Florida. See you next year. And see everyone again soon at the Federal Bar Association's annual conference in Detroit this May, where I'll be speaking with some very smart people on recent circuit and Supreme Court decisions. If you haven't yet bought your tickets for the FBA's conference, jump on it like the Sugar Hill Gang. The in-person conferences are back, and they were missed. They're a lot of fun. Here's some asylum stuff for you. First is Ibarra Chavez v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on April 15, 2022. This case is about protection under the Convention Against Torture. And with only two cases this week, I have a bit more time to dig a bit deeper into the Convention Against Torture and this case. Mr. Ibarra is from El Salvador and entered the United States without authorization in 2013. When placed in removal proceedings soon thereafter, he applied for asylum and related relief. As a basis, he claimed that when he, Mr. Ibarra, was 15 years old, he went to go live with his older brother in San Salvador and was present when his older brother was assassinated at a store by individuals Mr. Ibarra believes were part of the MS-13 International Criminal Organization. He believes this based on his own knowledge and because two witnesses told him of this. Those witnesses were themselves killed two days later. Not only that, but the brother's wife told Mr. Ibarra that he was killed because he had not paid extortion rent to MS-13. 
Mr. Ibarra left San Salvador and lived unharmed in another area of the country. That is, until MS-13 members in the town of Asulatan tried to recruit him. When he refused their demands, they assaulted him and threatened to kill him and his parents. His remaining siblings were similarly threatened about Mr. Ibarra's fate. Mr. Ibarra stayed in the home for about a year, and then he fled to the U.S. at 17 years old. Eventually landing in Virginia, it appears that Mr. Ibarra ended up in a multi-person brawl with MS-13 members in the U.S. and was stabbed by one of them. Mr. Ibarra assisted police against one of the members, and that member was convicted of crimes and deported to Honduras. Mr. Ibarra fears that if removed, he'll meet a fate like his brother, particularly as he refused MS-13's recruitment demands and because he assisted police against the Honduran MS-13 member. Now, Mr. Ibarra himself has tattoos that he claims are not gang tattoos. He testified that he is not and has never been an MS-13 member. But DHS submitted evidence that indicated that not only was Mr. Ibarra affiliated with MS-13, but that he had posed with weapons and had MS-13 tattoos, and that he had threatened individuals with gang-related harm, and had even tried to intimidate a witness. In support of his claim, though, Mr. Ibarra provided his own testimony, his brother's death certificate, and his sister's own sworn written testimony. He also presented expert testimony from two Ph.D. professors who both agreed that Mr. Ibarra will more likely than not be persecuted and tortured by MS-13 and additionally by the Salvadoran government and Salvadoran vigilante forces due to a mistaken belief that Mr. Ibarra was himself MS-13. An immigration judge found Mr. Ibarra not credible, primarily based on the IJ's belief that Mr. Ibarra wasn't being truthful about his MS-13 affiliations. The IJ acknowledged that the brother's death certificate indicates that the brother died of gunshot wounds, but the IJ noted that it was silent, as death certificates are, about whether the individuals behind those guns were MS-13 members. As to the experts, essentially, the IJ disregarded much of their opinions based on a belief that, following cross-examination, the experts didn't know enough about Mr. Abar's specific case to win the day. In a subsequent decision, the IJ went even deeper into the country condition evidence in El Salvador and believed that that evidence shows that Mr. Ibarra would not more likely than not be persecuted or tortured by the gangs, police, or vigilantes in El Salvador. Plus, the IJ believed Mr. Ibarra's ability to live in El Salvador safely for about two years severely undermined his claims. The BIA affirmed. On petition for review, Mr. Ibarra challenged only the denial of cat protection. To win before the Fourth Circuit, as with all circuits, he must show that he will more likely than not be tortured by the Salvadoran government, or that the Salvadoran government will acquiesce or consent to torture by private individuals in El Salvador. The Fourth Circuit has generally favorable law on this, and like many circuits at this point, requires that when an individual fears torture from multiple sources, an IJ, quote, must assess the likelihood of torture by aggregating the risk from all sources, end quote to then determine if it satisfies the more likely than not standard, 51%. And just to set the law straight, while relevant, an adverse credibility finding like the IJ made in this case is not fatal to a Convention Against Torture claim. Might be why Mr. Ibarra only challenged the cat denial on petition for review. That being said, to succeed, the CAT also requires that the non-citizen show affirmatively and as part of their initial burden that he or she cannot relocate safely in the country to avoid the torture that they fear. Alright, that's the law. 
To challenge the BIA and IJ's decision, Mr. Ibarra first argued that the IJ and BIA failed to consider all risks of torture in the aggregate, but the Fourth Circuit disagreed. Now true, agreeing with at least the Third, Sixth, and Ninth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit held that, quote, an applicant alleging probable torture from independent sources need not demonstrate that the probability of torture by one of the entities, or for one of the reasons, taken alone, exceeds 50%, end quote. Rather, the non-citizen has the burden to establish that, quote, the cumulative probability of torture by all the entities, or for all reasons, exceeds 50%, end quote. And that's an awesome non-citizen-friendly standard. That being said, the IJ did conduct the proper analysis here, according to the Fourth Circuit. And the IJ did not, as Mr. Ibarra claimed, conflate Mr. Ibarra's fears of police and his fears of vigilante groups. But rather, the IJ considered them separately and then combined them in the ultimate risk determination. It looks like the IJ even assumed that Mr. Ibarra would be detained by police as a suspected MS-13 member pursuant to Salvadoran Decree 717 but believed that he hadn't shown that it would lead to torture, particularly as his tattoos are indisputably not gang-related. Indeed, whether it's police or vigilante groups, the Fourth Circuit believes that, quote, if, as he claims, Mr. Abar is not a member of MS-13 or another gang, there is little risk that these groups would target him or that he would be involved in a gun battle with them, end quote. Moving on then, the Fourth Circuit also held that the BIA applied the proper standard of review to the IJ's decision. And before we get into the merits of that, the Fourth Circuit rejected Oil's attempt to get the Fourth Circuit to apply a rule similar to that percolating in the Fifth Circuit, that is, require Mr. Abara to file a motion to reconsider with the BIA first, telling the BIA that it applied the wrong standard of review before Mr. Abara can then challenge the BIA's error before the Fourth Circuit. So the Fourth Circuit rejected that onerous requirement. Right on, Fourth. But again, the Fourth Circuit then found that there was no error by the BIA in the BIA's application of its standard of review. This is a complicated issue that, quite frankly, has been a bit muddied in the last couple of years. But in the Fourth Circuit, an immigration judge's prediction of what will happen in the future, like the harm that an applicant will suffer, is a factual finding that the BIA can only overturn if that factual finding is clearly erroneous. Then, whether the anticipated harm that has been found by the IJ matches the legal definition of torture, or whether it satisfies any of the other Convention Against Torture legal requirements, is a legal question that the BIA then reviews de novo. It's not that the whole inquiry of whether someone will suffer torture in the future is a mixed question of law or fact. That's what Mr. Ibarra was arguing. Rather, they are segregated analyses in the Fourth Circuits, and each different part has a different standard of review for the BIA to apply. So the BIA did not err here by applying different standards of review to different portions of the analysis. Finally, the Fourth Circuit held that the IJ did not ignore evidence, as Mr. Ibarra argued. Plus, the record does undermine Mr. Ibarra's claims, according to the court, including the fact that he had lived in El Salvador unharmed for a couple of years, and that his family continues to reside there today. Mr. Abar therefore lost a long and complicated case. And I must admit... Even after all these years, and candidly after working for immigration judges on issues like this, I remain a bit unclear on how precisely the combining of aggregate risks is supposed to work in practice. 
There is Third Circuit case law, distinguished here a bit by the Fourth, that seems to require that an IJ put a percentage to each risk of harm and then add it up. So, say, if there are three reasons that a non-citizen fears torture, and each reason has a 15% chance of occurring, according to the IJ, that would then only be a 45% risk of torture, and so the non-citizen would lose. But it seems that the Fourth Circuit and other circuits prefer a more holistic approach, whereby an IJ must consider all harms and then decide whether they, in the aggregate, meet the 51% threshold without putting sub-percentages to each harm. I don't know which one is better, nor can I really see how one can determine the precise percentage of risk of harm that an individual faces. Perhaps that's why the circuits seem to prefer the more holistic approach to the aggregate risk analysis. And that is Abara Chavez v. Garland. That brings us to Sanchez Amador v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on April 11th, 2022. Another one about MS-13, this one from Honduras. And this case is really about the unwilling or unable to protect standard for asylum. Ms. Sanchez Amador is from Honduras and applied for asylum and related relief and removal proceedings in her about 2018. Quote, she testified that she had been sexually abused throughout her childhood by her cousin, uncle, stepfather, and landlord's son. End quote. She told some close family, but she never informed the Honduran police because she believed that police rarely act and that at a minimum, quote, would not help her unless she could provide a video, photograph, or other physical evidence. End quote. Indeed, she knows many women who have been sexually assaulted in Honduras, and the police never help. Ms. Sanchez Amador's husband moved to the U.S. to earn money to support his family, and when MS-13 learned about it, they started to extort Ms. Sanchez Amador and her children. And she paid MS-13, until they raised the monetary demand and she couldn't pay anymore, and so in fear for her life, she fled to go live with her mother. But MS-13 members found her, and one of them said that, quote, if she could not give him money, she had to be his woman, end quote. The gang member gave her one week to decide. Ms. Sanchez Amador reported this and the other threats to police, who said that they'd take about two weeks to investigate. But in fear for her life, she fled to the U.S. with her children and reunited with her husband before the two weeks was up. The IJ denied the asylum application, finding that while Ms. Sanchez Amador was credible, she failed to establish a well-founded fear on account of a protected ground under the INA, or that the Honduran government was unable or unwilling to protect her, because, quote, she left before the police could complete their investigation, end quote. The BIA affirmed. The Fifth Circuit did as well, focusing on the narrow issue of unable or unwilling to protect. At first blush, that sometimes seems like a kind of weird standard to require asylum seekers to establish, but as I understand it, asylum was initially created to protect people from their country's government. And so now under immigration law, as it has developed over the years, because Ms. Sanchez Amador's, quote, persecutors were non-government actors, she must also establish that the authorities were unable or unwilling to control them, end quote. And on this issue... Apparently, Ms. Sanchez Amador only focused on the MS-13 stuff before the Fifth Circuit, and not the sexual abuse when she was younger. So the Fifth Circuit primarily focused on that, too. The circuits are a bit inconsistent on the unable or unwilling to protect standard. 
I mean, there's no requirement under the statute or regulation that non-citizens need to report harm or their fears to police to satisfy this prong. But case law has developed in many circuits, making it difficult to win if a non-citizen hasn't reported incidents or their fears to the police. Many circuits don't hold a non-citizen's failure to report their fears or things that have happened to them to the police if it would be pointless in that country to do so. But in the Fifth Circuit, the quote, subjective belief that it would have been futile to report abuse to authorities is not sufficient to overturn the BIA, end quote, at least under the deferential standard of review that circuits apply at the petition for review stage. Ms. Sanchez Amador never reported those various assaults by men when she was younger. Therefore, according to the Fifth Circuit, quote, one would be hard-pressed to find that the authorities were unable or unwilling to help her if she never gave them the opportunity to do so, end quote. As to the MS-13 stuff, Ms. Sanchez Amador fled before the two-week investigation could conclude. According to the court, quote, the fact that police could not complete their investigation to Ms. Sanchez Amador's satisfaction within a single week does not compel the conclusion that they were unable or unwilling to help her, end quote. Ms. Sanchez Amador therefore lost her case. Don't forget about the footnotes, though. Check out footnote 6, Fifth Circuit Practitioners. While an unfortunate published decision for asylum seekers, the court in this case provides a list of Fifth Circuit cases in which the unable or unwilling to protect standard appears to be met. Make your case like those. And that is Sanchez Amador v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.